Today I would like to talk about um, the basic formation of the Buddha's teaching. There seems to be a trend in modern times to blur the distinction between various religious traditions and various teachings, sort of in an attempt to um, make sense of the the different religious traditions in a sort of a, a, an easy easy manner, meaning uh, rather than understand deeply the different religious traditions of the world, an easy way to come to terms with the differences is just to say that they're all the same. And I think that this is quite a dangerous uh, trend that we see happening, and you often hear people say, all religions uh, teach people to be good, all religions are the same. It doesn't matter what religion you believe in, um, as long as you believe or as long as you follow the, the teachings. And I think this is not in line with the teachings of the Buddha. This is not something that the Buddha would have advocated and that as Buddhists we should encourage. Um, but I think what's interesting about in the time of the Buddha is that you didn't have um, religions as such. You didn't have um, this group calling itself this religion, another group calling itself another religion, in the same way that you find today the various religious traditions being quite um, uh, set in and categorized as different religions. You had different teachers. And in fact, what I think you see today is exactly the same situation. The problem is that we've, we've gotten so accustomed to calling this group um, a, a certain a named religious tradition, another group, another named religious tradition, and so on, that we m lose sight of the fact that within each religious tradition there are many different paths which are mutually exclusive. So, and, and which m may have uh, much more similarity with another group or another path in another religious tradition. So, I think it's actually the same situation you find today as you would have found in the Buddha's time in India, that in fact, based on uh, each teacher's understanding of reality, they would teach a certain path. And it may be in line with reality, it may not be in line with reality. It may lead to your benefit and it may lead to your harm. And you can see with what we call cults in modern day, when they don't fit in with a certain religious tradition, we call them a cult, and they can often be quite damaging. But in fact, we can see that within religious traditions themselves, there are paths which very well might lead to, or very well do lead to harm for oneself and harm for others, as we see with, with terrorist, terrorism and, and uh, uh, zealot, religious zealots of various traditions doing things which cause great harm for themselves, harm for their children, harm for their societies, and so on. <coughs> And so I think when we talk about um, the difference between religions, we should really be talking about the difference between paths, the difference between the, the, the various um, solutions that are devised for the problems, the, the proposed problem that we face in, in, in our lives. Now, 
obviously the Buddha had a very specific path and and he said that it didn't matter what religion you were talking about or what teacher you were talking about and you know whether you you're practicing this religion or that religion you the only place that you can find enlightened beings is in a teaching that teaches what the Buddha called the Eightfold Noble Path. So by saying this, he wasn't trying to claim that he only had the, 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 the truth, not, not as such. I mean, the, the point was not to say that I am right because I'm Buddha or, or because um, you know, this is what I believe. He was saying that it didn't matter what you called it. You could call it Christianity, you could call it Islam, you could give it any name you like. It doesn't have to be called Buddhism. And just because you're Buddhism, Buddhist doesn't mean you're practicing <clears throat> this way. But whatever teacher teaches the Eightfold Noble Path and follows the Eightfold Noble Path, in that dispensation, in that religious tradition, you will find enlightened beings. You will find people who have realized the truth. In any religious tradition that doesn't have the Eightfold Noble Path. These eight criteria, which are, he's not, the Buddha was not saying are meant to be Buddhist as such, just eight criteria for a religious path. Uh, if it doesn't have these eight criteria, if it's failing in one of them, then you will never find enlightened beings in that tradition. So we have this, what we call the Eightfold Noble Path, and this is the teaching of the, the Buddha, the um, mode of practice that the Buddha encouraged his followers to undertake. So what I'd like to do today is talk about these, these eight factors with special emphasis placed on putting them into practice, um, <clears throat> as opposed to just understanding intellectually. And specifically, I'd like to show that often our understanding of these and our implementation of the various factors of the path is not nearly intensive or uh, fundamental enough to lead us to a true following of the Eightfold Noble Path. For instance, we may say that we're, we're, we are being moral because we're keeping the precepts, because we're not killing, not stealing, we're we are suppressing the urge to do these things. And yet, the, the, the Buddha's teaching on morality, as I'll explain as I go through the, the Eightfold Noble Path, the, each of the factors, was not simply the suppression of the desire to do these things. It was the arising of a mind that does not desire. When the chance arises to kill, to steal, or so on, when, uh, when, when the opportunity to do so arises, there arises a mind that, that doesn't wish to, that wishes not to do so, that is, is against it, that abstains in the mind. So it's a much more fundamental uh, mental and phenomenological moment-to-moment uh, you know, -moment experience than just an intellectual understanding or, or the recital of the rules and so on. The practice of the Eightfold Noble Path is something that we should be doing right here and now, whether we have the chance to kill or to steal or so on. When our mind is set in morality, concentration, and wisdom, even if the chance arose, we wouldn't do it. And it, it, there is no need for the chance to arise. We are set in morality, concentration, and wisdom. <clears throat> morality, concentration, and wisdom, by the way, are the... Um, 
abbreviated form of the Eightfold Noble Path. So when we break it up into, into sections, we find that we have three sections of the, noble, of the path of the Buddha. That they are the, the practice of morality, to guard our speech and to guard our, uh, our be bodily behavior. Concentration, to focus our minds and to, to keep our minds pure and clear, clearly aware of reality. And wisdom, to understand the reality based on our, our focused awareness. So these three are, are a summary of the Eightfold Noble Path, and there may be a way of understanding it in, in a chronological order, where you first you'll develop concentration, based on concentration you'll, you'll develop... Uh, you'll start with morality, based on morality you'll develop concentration, based on concentration you'll develop wisdom. The, but the Eightfold Noble Path, what's great about um, going through each of the parts is that you can see very precisely that the Buddha didn't just offer a um, you know, something that sounded good or or a an ideal way of being without explaining how to uh, here and now practice and and put into practice these concepts. He had a very detailed explanation and <clears throat> thus a, a very detailed method by which we can practice to realize the, 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 the truth of reality, the truth of life. So, so the eight parts um, then, as I said, constitute what one should consider to be true religion. And so explaining these and explaining them in terms of how we can put them into practice on a truly um, authentic um, level is is very important as Buddhists. This is something that we should um, keep constantly in mind. We should study and then we should put into practice. We should see it as our duty as Buddhists, our path and something that we should always strive towards and, and, and work towards attaining, work towards perfecting to the point that no matter what we're doing, we're always on the Eightfold Noble Path. So what do we, we have these, these eight parts. The first one is right view. So the Buddha taught that the, f the first and foremost thing for us to purify is our, our views. <clears throat> it's, it's not, but maybe not the most, the first chronologically, but it's the most important. Our view is, is what's going to determine how we practice. Uh, if, if we have a view of an eternal soul, then it's going to affect the way we look at the at suffering and the cause of suffering and the way out of suffering. And really in the, in the Buddha's formation of right view, he taught that we should give up views. He, he taught that basically right view is giving up all views, giving up any <clears throat> view of, of reality that is based on belief, that is based on conjecture, that is based on logical reasoning in favor of direct and experiential understanding of reality. The view that the Buddha would have us develop, the opinion, the, the belief that the Buddha would have us develop, if you will, is a belief based on uh, experience and based solely on experience. You see, many people will develop views based on their experience. So you'll hear religious people talk about having a religious experience where they are uh, where, where they, they see God or they hear God or they 
they experience something that says this is God, this is heaven, and so on. And as Buddhists, we would break this, break this up into pieces. We would say this view has arisen based on a misunderstanding of reality for what it is. Because if you see a bright light, there's nothing in it intrinsically that says this is God or this is A, B, C, D or, or, or anything. It's simply, except that it's a light, it's an experience. So, not only that our belief should be based on experience, it should be solely based on experience. That we should not make more of things than they actually are. We should not I extrapolate on reality to, to develop beliefs. You know, we experience something and then we develop a belief based on it. People who have had near-death experiences often have very strong attachment to beliefs, beliefs that they're going to go to heaven and, and that there is a God and so on and, and so on, based on the things that they've seen in their near-death experience, as, as one example. I think um, an, another common, maybe even more common uh, view that arises, especially among, among practicing Buddhists, are views that arise based on scriptural um, study. So people will study the Buddha's teaching, will study those things which are true and, and valid, and develop views based on them. I'm talking to Buddhists, I've heard many different views arise based on reality, based on the Buddha's teaching of what is real, what is true, things that are verifiable. The extrapolation of these teachings, and people develop all sorts of, of, of views based on, on, on these teachings. This is a, a real problem, this is wrong view. When you develop a view that, that says you know, that the Buddha taught there is a soul, the Buddha taught that, that there is no soul, or so on. Uh, I have no soul, things that the Buddha obviously didn't teach. Um, when you develop, you know, people develop many different views, and as a result, there are many Buddhist schools. There is, in Thailand, there are people who say that Nibbana, Nirvana, the ultimate uh, freedom from suffering, is Atta, is self. And this became a great controversy in Thailand, but there, were, there was a large group of Buddhists who believe this. People who believe that the middle, the middle way is in the middle of the body. When you find your center of gravity, then you, you found the middle way. And when you focus on it, you will come to see the truth and so on and, and develop many different views based on this, which have no basis in the Buddhist teaching. So, again, it's important that we don't intellectualize these things. The view that the Buddha would have us see is our experience of reality. And what we're going to see when we experience reality, when we start to practice meditation, is first we'll see the truth of suffering. We'll see that all of reality, all of what is real, is unsatisfying. The Buddha said, nothing in the world is worth clinging to. Sabbe dhamma nalang abhinevesaya. There, there are no dhammas, no reality, no part of reality that is worth clinging to, that is worth holding on to and saying this is going to make me happy. Because there's nothing in the world that can make you happy. There's nothing in our body, in our minds, in the world around us that can make us, us happy. So all of these things are called suffering. They are suffering as long as we cling to them. This view, um, if understood intellectually, has, has gained a lot of criticism and has gained Buddhism a lot in general a lot of criticism, saying it's pessimistic and it's uh, nihilistic or it, it denies 
the pleasures in life, it denies the reality of pleasure and so on. And as a result makes, makes Buddhists quite miserable. When in fact, the opposite is true. You'll find that um, there, there was a funny thing on the internet that um, where, where people would type into, into the search engine, um, why are Christians so? And the search engine would, would uh, give examples of, of things people had searched for. Why are Christians so this, so that, so that, why are Muslims and so on. The only thing that comes up for Buddhists is why are Buddhists so happy? So what we know about Buddhists is how happy they are. This is what is known around the world. The Dalai Lama is this, this great uh, spokesperson for Buddhism and he's obviously very happy. Buddhists around the world are incredibly happy. So it's clear that this criticism is, is not valid, but uh, th there still arises this doubt in people that is Buddhism you know, just focusing on the negative, focusing on the miserable. And I think this is a misunderstanding of, of what is meant by suffering. That instead of looking at, the, the, the point is that instead of looking at the world in terms of what is going to make me happy, in terms of hoping and wishing and trying to find that one thing or those things that are going to make us happy and run away from those things that are going to make us unhappy, is to understand reality to the point where nothing makes us unhappy, where we cling to nothing, where we have no suffering, where there is no one thing that can hurt us. And this is by seeing the truth. This um, state is accomplished by seeing the truth that there is nothing that is going to make you happy. As long as you're trying to find happiness in one thing or another, you're always going to have partiality. You're always going to dislike certain things and, and like certain other things. You're always going to compartmentalize reality into the good and the bad, the acceptable and the unacceptable. So all the, the, that is meant by this truth of suffering is the letting go of the idea that you're going to find happiness in some certain experience or in any experience, that any specific real thing that arises in the world is going to make you happy, when in fact nothing that arises can make you happy because it's always going to disappear and it's never, it's never certain when it's going to come. So th this is really what the Buddha meant by, by right view, that th there is suffering. The cause is our attachment to, to really anything. Uh, the cessation of suffering is simply our cessation of our attachment. When we live in the world in, with an understanding of reality as opposed to any sort of partiality or bias, any colored judgment, a simple clear understanding of what's arising here and now, not extrapolating, not making more of it, not judging it in any way. This is the cessation of suffering. <clears throat> the fourth part is that the path which leads to the, the cessation of suffering is the Eightfold Noble Path. This is part of right view. It's and this is why it's important to talk about the Eightfold Noble Path, that we should understand that this path is what's going to lead us to see uh, the, the, see the truth. The, the second part of the path is right thought. And when we practice the Buddha's teaching, when we start to see reality, our minds are going to become impartial. And this is, so first we have the view, the view that, that uh, this is the way things are. The thoughts that arise based on this view are free from greed, free from anger, and free from delusion. So this is important to understand, and this makes it clear 
that what we're talking about is a moment-to-moment practice. We're not talking about an intellectual understanding. If you still have greed in your mind, if you still have anger, if you still have delusion in your mind, these are the thoughts of, of sensual indulgence, wanting to get good things and so on. If you still have uh, anger, wanting to hurt other people, or if you still have conceit, holding yourself above others, wanting to um, hold them down or put them down or hold yourself up and oppress others, uh, then, then you're not following the Eightfold Noble Path. And really the only way to be free from these, uh, truly free from them, is to, to, to clearly see things as they are. You can't repress them, uh, force them away, or make yourself um, you know, consciously, putting out conscious effort to repress them. You have to see things as they are. This is why view leads then to, to, to right thought, or, or why they go together. Once we see things as they are, we're not going to have any of these, these judgments, and as a result we won't have desire for sights or sounds or so on. We'll be able to experience anything without partiality and be happy all the time. And we won't have any anger towards other beings or hatred or, or upset when things don't go our way. And we won't have any delusions which make us think that we're better than others and so on. Our minds will be clear and we'll simply see things as they are. The third factor on the path, um, here we're starting to get into morality. The, let's, we'll talk about the next three. So the first two are, are, are based on wisdom. The next one is right speech, and right speech, right action, and right livelihood. These are the morality part. Now as I said in the beginning, it's important to understand that these three factors, they should be understood as a state of mind, not as uh, some physical um, reality that, that, that you're, you're not killing, right? Because if keeping the precepts, if following the Eightfold Noble Path in the morality section, we're simply not killing, not stealing, not lying, not cheating, uh, not, um, not har give, having harsh, making harsh speech or gossiping or, or useless speech, then we, could all, we would all be following the path at, at various times, when we were not speaking, if we're just sitting quietly, yeah. and if we're not killing, not stealing, then we're, we're, we'd be considered to have morality. But this is not the morality that the Buddha had in mind. Right speech and right action, yes, these are on, on a um, superficial level, they mean simply that, not saying, telling lies, refraining from harsh speech or, or divisive speech, and refraining from useless speech. This is what is meant by, by right speech. But in terms of following the path, the, the right speech factor is only um, fulfilled when there's no intention in the mind, when there is no desire in the mind, when the mind is in a state where it would never say these things, where it, even if the chance arose at that moment, the mind would be in such a state where it, it, it would be well guarded and the opportunity someone comes starts talking to you, saying useless things, you wouldn't reply with, with useless speech. You would say something that is useful. Uh, when 
the opportunity to come comes up, someone says something nasty to you, you have the opportunity to say something nasty back, you don't do it because your mind is focused, because you have clear understanding of reality, because of the your, your right view of things as they are. When someone is talking to you, you see it as sound, you experience it as sound at the ear. In meditation we'll say to ourselves, hearing, hearing, hearing. And many meditators are able to verify this for themselves when before they practice meditation they would very easily get into an argument with other people. When someone was saying nasty things to them, they would immediately um, talk back and, and create an, an argument. After they practice meditation, they would find the people talking to them, they're able to say to themselves, hearing, 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 and even though the person is saying nasty things and terrible things, they have no desire to, to respond. So at that moment, they can be said to be developing the Eightfold Noble Path. At this moment, their mind is moving closer to freedom from suffering because they're seeing things as they are and they're learning about what is the truth of this speech, that it is really just speech. Uh, it is really just sound arising at the ear. The truth of, of and this, the, the truth of right action is the same. Uh, right action is not simply the refraining from, from killing and stealing and cheating, uh, committing adultery or, or improper uh, sexual conduct. This is the the understand. This is what we understand intellectually to be the eightfold the eightfold noble path factor of right action. But w again, what it means is that we have no desire to do these things. When the when these objects of the sense arise, we have no desire to steal or to kill or to even hurt other beings to to do things that are immoral. In fact, there will there will arise no desire or no aversion which would be the, the, the cause then for us to kill, to steal, to lie. So the meaning is that at that time, um, the, the, the Buddha's teaching and the path of the Buddha is such that it leads people to give up these things. And we can see that in other religious traditions this is lacking. In other paths this obviously is lacking because they have um, the allowance to do these things, the allowance to kill, to hurt other beings, um, to to um, you know, maybe even to steal or to 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 cheat. In in many cases, these these um, precepts can be broken, and even by many Buddhists, these precepts are broken. People who call themselves Buddhists break these, and they break them as a result of of not following the Buddha's teaching, not following the path, not being able to focus their minds. We see many Buddhist people. I had an an opportunity once to give the five precepts to a group of lay Buddhists in Canada. And I was holding up my fan and giving the precepts at their home. They had us over for lunch um, and, and they had us give them the precepts, so they all took the five precepts. Then we ate lunch. After we ate lunch, all the lay people were going to eat lunch and we were just sitting there, the two monks, talking. And then they brought out a big case of beer and they, they, they handed out the beer. And <laughs> We were sitting there quite disgusted by this, that, that this group of people who had just not, not one hour ago received the five precepts were now already ready to break it. This is, arises through a misunderstanding or, or lack of understanding in what is the teaching of the Buddha and an inability to practice what the Buddha taught. Because at the moment when we're practicing the Buddha's teaching, we don't have a desire to do these things. It's something that's very difficult to, to attain very easy to understand and actually very easy to put into practice. 
but very difficult to practice to the point where one is successful and is able to give these things up and have no desire to kill, to steal, to, to lie, and so on. Right livelihood is simply pointing out that this, this is, livelihood is also purified through the practice of the Buddha's teaching. Once our mind is pure, once we see things clearly, uh, by keeping the precepts of, of, not, of um, refraining from improper bodily and improper verbal uh, behavior, that our livelihood is, is pure as well. What, whatever livelihood we engage in, we will not engage in uh, crooked dealings. Business people who are truly Buddhist will not try to cheat others. Um, shopkeepers and so on will advertise their prices fairly, uh, honestly, and, and not trying to um, misrepresent the, the wares that they're selling, and so on. Uh, people people who are truly practicing the teaching will refrain from certain livelihoods. They won't sell things that are of uh, danger to others, that are harmful to others. They will only engage in business that is either neutral or has some benefit for other people, so that there is a mutual benefit gained. So selling alcohol, selling weapons, and so on, they will refrain from because they know that this is not truly a benefit. This is causing harm to other beings. So this is gained through the practice of the Buddhist teaching, and this is an important part of the, of the path. And you can see if, if people are engaging in improper livelihood, killing animals, slaughtering animals, and so on for their livelihood, that they're not following um, the, the path which leads to enlightenment, the path which leads to true understanding of reality, because their mind is clearly still um, inconsistent in terms of wanting to be free from suffering oneself and yet bringing suffering on other beings, uh, creating suffering in the universe. The, the sixth, seventh, and eighth part of the path get into the concentration aspect. So the first two, again, to recap, are the, the uh, wisdom aspect. The third, fourth, and fifth are the, con are the morality aspect. And the sixth, seventh, and eighth are the concentration aspect. These ones are really where we start to practice. As I said, right view is the most important, uh, and so it comes first. But in the practice of the Buddhist teaching, really, we start by practicing, in some sense, concentration. It doesn't mean that right away we develop concentration, or we have concentration, but this is where we start. We start by having right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. This is the practical part of, of the teaching. We don't have to go out of our way to develop the other one, the, the other three. When we start to apply right effort and right concentration and, and right mindfulness, we will come to see things as they are. We simply have to gain a basic understanding of how to practice. And as we go along, we'll be able to see things as they are. Then it will become important to develop right view and, and, and right morality will come as a result. So, chronologically, um, the, the first thing we should do is sit down and practice meditation. Now, we often say that chronologically morality comes first, but as I said, this morality that arises first is simply a, uh, a worldly morality. Obviously, if you're engaged in killing and stealing and so on, you'll never be able to develop meditation co concentration, so you have to give that up. But real, true morality only arises when we start to practice meditation, as I said. So this is why concentration becomes the most important in the beginning. Once we have an intellectual understanding of the Buddha's teaching, what is the, the Four Noble Truths, 
Uh, doesn't mean we doesn't mean we have right view as such. It means we have a basic understanding of what is right view, the right view that we're trying to develop, and we have a basic uh, practice of morality. It means uh, we understand what are the what are the precepts and so on. This doesn't mean that we have morality according to the Eightfold Noble Path, but it means that um, we we are refraining from those things that are uh, that that we know eventually we're going to give up entirely through the practice of meditation then we start to sit down and practice meditation the practice of meditation has to ha has to contain these three aspects it has to have effort it has to have mindfulness and it has to have concentration and it has to have right effort right mindfulness and right concentration because there are wrong effort wrong mindfulness and wrong concentration which could lead us on the wrong path and which do lead many people on the wrong path. Wrong effort, for example, uh, when, when people put out too much effort, it's also wrong effort. As I was saying in an earlier talk, um, many people push themselves. There's the story of this monk who was a te great teacher and had many students who became enlightened through his practice, but he himself was still an ordinary human being. Well, he went off into the forest and d tried to practice on his own and was very much intent on becoming enlightened, even to the point where, where, where it became a hindrance on the path, having too much effort, because his mind, mind was unable to focus. There was no happiness, no peace in his mind, which would have allowed him to focus and to develop constant morality, concentration, and wisdom. Like the Buddha said, only when your mind is calm can you see things as they are just as only when a, a pool of water is calm can you see the things um, at the bottom of the pool. So, so this monk realized this and, and he was able to adjust his practice. And the same, there's a story of Ananda, this famous story of how Ananda was doing the same thing, practicing walking meditation all night because there was so much pressure on him that the next day he was to join in the first council the recital of the Buddha's teachings and the codifying of what it was that the Buddha taught. So all night he spent in walking meditation, developing effort, putting out effort, striving, because the Buddha said you need effort to be free from suffering. Well, he practiced all night and realized that he hadn't gained anything. When he thought about why that was, he realized it's because his energy was too much, that the Buddha had taught the balancing of the faculties. So. As a result, he decided to lie down, thinking that by lying down he would increase his concentration and the, the energy would subside, the, the, the excess energy would subside and there would be a balance. As it happened, as he was lying down, knowing to himself that he was lying, as the Buddha said, um, when you're lying, you know that you're lying, he said to himself, lying, knowing that he was lying down. His feet came off the floor, and before his head touched the pillow, he had, he had become an enlightened being. He had become an, an arahant. So this is an example of how excess effort, excess concentration, there, there can be wrong effort and wrong concentration. There can also be wrong mindfulness, as I'll explain. So with effort here, we have excess effort is no good. And obviously, uh, um, having not enough effort is, is also wrong. We have to have a balanced effort, which simply means seeing things as they are. The, the setting the mind on seeing things as they are 
For instance, when we watch the stomach, this basic object of meditation there, and again, there are so many objects that we can choose, but this basic movement of the body, which is the aggregate of, of, of material, of the physical, we experience the movement of the rising and the falling. When we put our mind, sending our mind out to the stomach to watch it, keeping our mind there, and guarding very carefully to watch when the mind runs away, uh, to watch when the mind goes to pain or goes to thoughts or goes to emotions when the mind starts to judge, and jumping on that and sticking with the mind to see, with, with this kind of um, you know, effort to keep up with the mind, not to fall behind, not to lose track, and not to get off track. Is, is called right effort. So this, by this we give up um, bad states and we develop good states. It doesn't mean that we have to push ourselves. It should be some kind of, um, it should feel effortless. When you practice it, you feel that your mind is well balanced and you're simply seeing things as they are. Right mindfulness is uh, equally important and it's important to understand what is right mindfulness. Right mindfulness is mindfulness based on the present moment. The word mindfulness comes from the Pali sati. Uh, and sati, why we say this is right mindfulness is based on, on, on the present moment is because the word sati means to remember or to recollect. And so many people will, in the practice of meditation, will, will go back to the past and thinking about things that happened in the past or, or, or going, you know, we hear about the Buddha taught cause and effect, so they will go back to the cause and, and trying to see what was the cause of their suffering. Uh, and this is not considered right mindfulness. Right mindfulness has to be here and now. So it has to be at the moment that the object occurs. When we're walking, our awareness of the movement should be at the moment of the movement. Our, our, our recognition should be at the moment it occurs. When we have a thought, our recognition that it's a thought should occur at that moment. This is why when we're walking, we have to say to ourselves, as the foot moves, step, being right or left goes thus or however you want to say it, knowing as the Buddha said, knowing I am going, I am walking, knowing what's going on, knowing it for what it is. When, uh, when you feel pain, when you're thinking, you say to yourself, as it's happening, thinking, thinking, or so on. And so, so mindfulness of things that occurred in the past are no good. Also, mindfulness of the future is also no good. But obviously, uh, in the practice of meditation, uh, it should be clear that we're trying to stay in the present moment, that there should be no um, thinking about the future, no thinking about the past. And this is an important reminder for us to check whether our practice is successful, whether we're still in the future or in the past, or whether we're actually aware of things as they occur instead of expecting certain things or, or going back to things as, th as they had already happened. The other thing about right mindfulness is it has to be focused on reality. We can't be mindful of a concept. We can't be mindful of, uh, of say, the Buddha. Because for right mindfulness to arise, it has to be based on uh, the reality that we're experiencing. We can't use a kasina, the, the, a, 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 an object arising in our mind. For instance, when we close our eyes, the visualization. We have these techniques of creative visualization, seeing this, seeing that, 
and developing concentration based on that. These won't work because we, if we base our concentration on these, we can't see things, uh, we can't see the truth of reality. We're not going to, we're not focusing on reality, so we can't come to see things as they are. All we're seeing is the way this uh, illusory phenomenon is, this, this construct that we've created in our minds. And we can pretend that it's permanent, that it's satisfying, that it's controllable. We can seemingly control these things. It's only when we look at reality, when we acknowledge our movements of the body, the feelings in, in, in the body and in the mind, the thoughts and the emotions and so on, that we come to see impermanent suffering and all that. We come to see the insubstantiality of things and are able to let go. So this is what it means. Right mindfulness means focusing on the body and the mind or the four foundations of mindfulness as it's broken down to in the Buddha's teaching. The final part of the Eightfold Noble Path is right concentration. Right concentration is very important to understand because wrong concentration arises quite often. Wrong concentration is any concentration which still has uh, some kind of attachment or some kind of partiality or some kind of judgment. That concentration which simply suppresses the defilements uh, of greed and anger without getting at the root of them, which is delusion. So that kind of, uh, of, of concentration which simply focuses the mind, as I said, on a concept or a construct, uh, or focuses the mind on, on some negative or positive aspect of reality, getting angry and focusing on the anger, getting attached and focusing on wanting something or so on. Uh, or this conceit that arises based on um, our strong concentration, our observation of a concept or a construct. There are many people who believe they're enlightened. They've experienced some perfectly calm state and as a result they think I am enlightened and they have this conceit about them. They think they're an enlightened individual based on their concentration. Again, true concentration should should be the same as the mindfulness. The mindfulness has to be in the present, has to be based on reality. Concentration should be focused on the present reality. And it should be impartial. Our concentration should be focused on things as they are. So we should be focused on something that is real. The other thing about this concentration is that it's dynamic. Uh, our concentration should not be fixed or focused on, a, on one single object because there's no single object of reality that lasts. If you're focused on a single object, say the Buddha or so on, now this concentration is good for calming the mind and this is what is good about focusing on the Buddha or so on. But it, it is not part of the Eightfold Noble Path because that concentration is not letting you see reality. Reality is changing all the time. The only way you can see reality is by focusing on one thing after another. So when you walk with the right foot, you know the right foot is moving. When you walk with the left foot, you know that the left foot is moving, and so on. This is an explanation of the, the Eightfold Noble Path. These three, last three, are the ones that we should start with, start to develop. We get a basic understanding of the Buddha's teaching, a basic morality, then start meditating. And it will go back and filter into creating pr true right view and true right, true right morality, uh, true wisdom, true morality, and perfect concentration where we are able to finally see the truth of life and come to attain Nibbana. So thank you for tuning in. This has been um, a teaching on what is the Eightfold Noble Path according to the Buddha. 
And what the Buddha said is necessary to um, incorporate or to find in a religion which, um, which will allow it to have uh, enlightened beings in it, so that uh, we can understand that any religion, that any religious tradition, any path that has these eight qualities in it, these eight factors, can be said to be a true religion which is leading to freedom from suffering, which leads people to become enlightened. So thank you for tuning in, and uh, I wish for all of you to be able to put these teachings into practice and to realize for yourself the truth of the Buddhist teaching. All the best. I wish for all of you to find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Thank you.